This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic, where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, Resilience on Radio, broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz. Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on Radio. Each week we talk with somebody who is making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective. The show is co-hosted by Shane Gallagher and me, Samuel Mann. Shane's not here tonight. In fact, we don't have a guest tonight. What we're doing instead is exploring opposites. There's a reason for exploring opposites and it's blowing bubbles. On yesterday's Blowing Bubbles show, James Harrison requested a song by Nguyen Afrobeat. That's a Chilean group who play Afrobeat, the style developed by Feta Cutie through the 60s and 70s and 80s. His son did a special with Nguyen Afrobeat singing one of Fella Cutie's songs, Opposite People. And James mentioned that Fela Kuti, a Nigerian musical and socio-political activist, put a lot of effort into being an activist against the political corruption, poverty and primitive living conditions in Nigeria, despite it being oil-rich. And having looked that up, I started to wonder about what our guests have said about opposites so we'll explore that we'll listen to a little bit of opposite people first it's real long so we'll have a little bit here and put the rest on at the end
So the introduction goes on for nine and a half minutes. Eventually we get to the lyrics, which are here. Okay, nearly here. we'll put the whole thing at the end so let's go exploring in the sustainable lens archive looking for opposites we're starting with indra kularatni talking about how international students perceive environment and society asian cultures those students are more thinking in terms of environment mm-hmm. protecting the environment and then um, they are not thinking that the environment is only for themselves they think that uh, they have to protect it and they have to pass it to the next generation not to overuse sometimes i feel that some op- uh, some clashing or some um, uh some um, the opposite I, I understanding and definition from the other um students uh so um so i yes sometimes i have seen that one but um somehow that uh, based on their education and knowledge and um, what they have learned what they have seen the pollution and all these things but all are under some uh, common understanding of that Yes, we have to protect the environment. We have to save the environment. We have to, we have to uh, do something about what is happening right now. I think it's on the other hand, um, even though whatever their culture and all these things, but now the uh, social media and uh, internet and um, information dissemination is much advanced than the earlier stages. So I think their common knowledge. is towards protecting the environment and more sustainable life and how you can do individually as well as a group so they have i think that sort of like common total understanding indra and the fire engines there here is a richard jackson so and they're they're so um exaggerating and and hyping up uh threats that actually if you look at them statistically are a tiny you know you're much more likely to die from peanut allergy or drowning in your bathtub or getting hit by lightning than you're ever likely to be killed in a terrorist attack but that never plays into it um you would certainly not get that impression from the media i think you know there's also been a failure i guess of um public intellectuals um media commentators and and courageous politicians to stand up and say hold on a second this is hysteria uh we really don't need to be this worried and we really don't need to change our entire way of life um for the, for this kind of um hyped up threat 
Professor of Peace Studies, Richard Jackson there. Here's Louis Chambers. Zero. I think the most useful place we can be is bringing that sort of fresh youthful optimism and doing some of the, the hard research to back that up. Presumably you can do too much research and be too subtle. I'm mm. thinking about the system symptoms too serious to ignore campaign, Al Mark's campaign, which you spoke at the, the launch of. Is that too subtle? Is, is it too sort of nuanced or too academic to, to, to get traction? It's a really hard question. Especially because I've been involved with it for so long, it's a, it's tough to evaluate critically. I definitely have had some doubts about it initially. I felt like it was laying out a suite of problems. I mean, if you take what I said before about focusing on one issue like climate change, they've gone for the opposite, which is to try and sort of outline a, a host of things. And their very message, symptoms too serious to ignore, is saying that these are symptoms, but there's an underlying flaw in the system. Do I think it's too subtle? I've come around to see the place of it, actually, and have become more enthusiastic about it. The reason it's valuable is that by focusing on the language of symptoms, I think it is very objective and very rigorous, and it feels... If Generation Zero is sort of this fast-moving, young, changeable thing, this one feels much more like a juggernaut. It sort of slowly picks up pace and, and rumbles along. And it will be fascinating to see in the next couple of years where it goes, particularly because I think they've done such a good job of establishing a very firm foundation, getting lots of notable signatories on board. It's still a very depoliticized, credible thing, and that means that it's not a kind of household name. It's not something which is visually as appealing. But for me, there's a, there's a real value in them taking the chance to try and be rigorous and the kind of change which that affects will be slower and might not connect with as much of the population. I don't think this will succeed as a mass public engagement campaign, but I do think it will engage a lot of older people and particularly maybe people with more power in the political processes to, to start rolling things forward. Louis Chambers on the language of symptoms and using that to engage decision makers. Here is a decision maker from Nelson, also a cartoonist, Matt Lowry. The things we do agree on, knowing that there will be differences along the way. Um, you know, I, I, I think that there are examples around the country where councils have been unified in certain areas and they've got real results and I think we haven't had enough of that because I don't think Nelson's got enough of a vision right now in terms of where do you we think, want to go. Do you think that councils greenwash? Yeah. Do they pick a few easy things to say that they're doing it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that that's very much, you know, I don't want to sound cynical, but, you know, we've got this uh, climate change, $100,000 for climate change. It's election year. You know, climate change is, is one of the big issues now. Um, and I guess I'm not saying we shouldn't have that money there, but like I said earlier, you know, I, I want it to have some integrity. 
and I want it to be. I want that that philosophy to apply to everything. I don't think you can say we're going to spend hundred thousand dollars on climate change, but then we're going to do a roading project that is completely the opposite of everything that anyone who knows anything about climate change, you know, says we should be doing. Um, that stuff. That's sort of like is I kind of see good, my role there. Is council good at that joined up thinking? And not 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 good enough. Yeah. Not enough, but that—that's because again, it comes to me. It comes down to leadership. I think if you've got leadership that sees the inconsistency, inconsistency that I'm pointing out, then um, you don't end up in this place. You know, you'd be—you'd actually be saying, "Look, we take climate change seriously. We no longer want to build a new highway that would actually increase emissions. We've decided that actually isn't our future. Our future is active transport. Our future is." Uh, rideshare, our future is um, EVs, our future is public transport. Do but but we, don't, we don't do bold. We don't make a big bold decision Do you like need that. to push or have a, a crisis? Uh, Queenstown's got free transport yeah, yeah, yeah. now Pretty much because right. they have the crisis of yeah. not being able to get the buses into uh, the cars well, into town. You know, I, 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 it does, does my head in because, because we should be able to look at Queenstown, we should be able to look at Auckland, we should be able to look at cities all over the world and get it and it comes back to this idea that maybe some people in local government just don't get out enough I mean maybe they just don't they've never been on a subway train in Japan or, or seen how public transport works in Germany or you know half the world um, so I, it's a shame I, I just don't believe it should have to get that bad before it can get good and I, and I think I think Nelsonians have seen enough of how bad it can be to be starting to shift in their thinking somewhat, I think, because they have just seen our traffic get worse. And I think increasingly people are coming to the conclusion that actually you can't build your way out of congestion. You just actually have to change the way people, you know, get around. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's that's the key. And just one other thing I'd say in terms of... Um, Matt Lowry talking about vision, integrity and leadership... We see that with James Irwin, a New Zealander living in London, who works in recruitment, specialising in, let's call it sustainable jobs. I'll do something about it. Uh, and uh, in, in the world that we live in, a lot of people are driven by um, by by the capitalism and the, and, the, and the commercial side. So understanding both sides is yeah, critical. So that, was, that was my thought process behind, behind doing that. How did you? Uh, that, that's quite insightful as somebody deciding to do those two things because mm. you went straight to the nub of the problem: the the sell more stuff and the don't sell more stuff <laughs> meet together right there. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, for me, um, part of it maybe I'm maybe I'm, I'm patting myself on the back too much. Maybe I didn't have that idea right at the start, but from memory, one of the the courses that you had to do from from studying uh, the wider. Uh, Bachelor of Science in Environmental Studies was um, Economics 101, which I'd, I'd never ever touched on before, and I, I thought it was it'd just be purely purely spreadsheets, um, and uh, uh, and I was amazed, and, and um, everything turned out to be the complete opposite of what I thought it was, and and the economic side, um, there, there were no there were some, but but that type of economics there weren't a huge number of. Of precise answers, it was more that these are this is what we think and this is what we believe and these are what the drivers are. But 
um, and then going into an ecology class, which I thought would be like that, it would be a lot more subjective, and that was just purely objective. It was facts, figures, numbers. <laughs> um, this is exactly how it is, and you have to do this exact study to get this 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 outcome, which is um, statistically uh, viable. So uh, yeah, it certainly opened, <laughs> opened my eyes doing both. But I, was, I was glad I did do both. Let's leave the streets of London and go looking for Wales with Philippa Brakes. I think that's correct. I think they have a right not to be subject to those sorts of abuses. So the threats to the whales and dolphins are not just from hunting but from the habitat um, being affected. And one of those things is what we're now putting into the sea. So it's not just ships, there's marine renewables going in mm, yeah and, and re- marine renewables is is quite a focus for wdc at the moment we have a report that we've um, recently issued and can be found on our website at um, wales.org and um it was very interesting today actually because before our presentation there was a speaker who showed some pictures of underwater turbines and I think a lot of people in the room had probably never seen pictures of underwater turbines before and essentially they look an awful lot like um, uh, wind generators so they're just these big open blades sometimes they're open blades that are going in opposite direction to each other as the speaker rightly described them as scissors um, and they're, you know, they're of large scale. They move at a, a quite a fast speed. Certainly, you know, he described the ends of these um, uh, propeller arms moving at about uh, forty-five, the equivalent of forty-five k's per hour. So, um, and the question that we have is, it's very interesting. We've mapped the uh, the growing use of renewables in um, across the UK and also we've mapped growing interest by industry in renewables right across the world and there certainly is a burgeoning in interest in this industry and in many ways quite rightly so you know we've also done a lot of work on climate change and the potential impacts of climate change to marine species particularly marine marine mammals and uh, we have a lot of concerns in relation to that but we also are aware that there is a dilemma here we need to we need to be very careful about the kinds of new technologies that we're putting into the oceans and to be sure that at the very least we can um, start to record any impacts that they're having and you know those impacts can range from the noise associated with the developments, the noise associated with the devices whilst they're um, in operation, um, which can lead to potentially. Well, this is the thing we don't know what it could lead to. You know, we don't know whether it'll lead to displacement or actual injury. Um, and then there's the the sort of the longer scale, looking at what happens to these devices, um, whether when they get decommissioned. You know, they might it might essentially provide quite a dangerous environment um, for marine mammals so it's got to be what we're calling for really is that there has to be from a, a cradle to grave approach to this technology there has to be more collaboration across the globe with uh, people who are using this technology and where they're using it and we need to look better we need to know a little bit more about some of those critical habitat areas where they relate to um areas of interest for renewables industry and not to be putting turbines in critical habitat for critically endangered species which is which is one thing we're, we're a little bit concerned about in New Zealand actually because there's um, the conservation minister has issued a permit for 200 um, 
uh, underwater turbines, which are about 25 metres in height and will sit about at low tide, roughly five metres below the sea surface, so that there's you know there's enough room for shipping. Well, certainly for boats to go in and, in and out. Um, in the Kuiper Harbour in a place which has had an awful lot of sightings of New Zealand's critically endangered marine um, mammal, which is the uh, Maui's dolphin. So I think that's that doesn't seem like a, a particularly logical decision to have made from a conservation perspective, to be citing something, a, a technology of this kind um, for which the impacts are unknown uh, within the habitat of a critically endangered species. So it's it's that balance between, you know, reducing our dependence upon fossil fuels, but while making sure that our alternative measures don't create further problems. Let's go from dilemmas involving whales to the other sorts of whales. Here's Deirdre McIntyre. We do, we have, and lots of the um, courses do have their own um, student activity groups, um, yeah, sustainability groups, you know groups that go off and like planting vegetables and ones that look after the botanical garden so there, there are students out there who definitely want to be involved for us in terms of the halls of residence it, they're not necessarily all in halls of residence and they usually get into that kind of you know um group at, or act, active group maybe towards the end of their first year or into their second year and by then we've kind of lost them so we have to make sure that we're a breeding ground if you like for students in terms of what they want to get involved in and you know if they do come back and stay with us in the second third year that they will be champions for us so um i was going to yeah. say that do you actively manage the the progression through that i was imagine i was wondering if those groups of eight do you try and put a second year student in that group no. of eight no um quite the opposite actually so we run a system uh, called kinetics which students self-select their rooms um <clears throat> because in the olden days like gladiators Yes. <laughs> you know, in years gone by, there'd be a room just full of paper and you'd be looking for somebody who liked, you know, I don't know, Led Zeppelin to go with somebody who liked Marillion and you'd hope they kind of, they'd marry up. Now, you know, you could be living next door to anybody and you can choose your room based on the direction the sun rises, if you like, you know, if you're so minded. Um, it takes an awful lot of work out of the back room, if you like, of our department. Um and it gets a, you know, it's a greater mix of students. So they on, online or something. They yeah, online, yes. Select a whole pile of criteria yeah. and it says, "How about this one?" Yeah. So, so we tend to put our returning students, our second and third years, together because the theory is they probably want to work a little bit harder. They're not so much for the party scene anymore. Um, so they, you know, we have blocks allocated for our returning students. Yeah. Deirdre McIntyre, they're talking about the role of activities outside the classroom for education for sustainability here's ben anderson resources um, so an online newspaper delivered in some way surely would save all those trees that were being printed that you know printed on um, and there was also a, gr a big big hope that things like video conferencing as they called it would reduce business travel would reduce travel full stop well one of the things that we found working in BT, we had there were several projects about this, um, and it was exactly the opposite. So, video enabled you to have distributed teams, but to manage and um, maintain those distributed teams and do all the things that require a little bit of negotiation, a bit of eye contact, really touchy feely things that make teams work, you had to travel. 
So because you had a global, let's say, a global supply chain in a large organization, which realized it could put some services in cheaper places where the labor costs were lower, they then had to do more travel to service that distributed organization. So in fact, we found there was a correlation between increased video telephony and air travel which was the exact opposite that everybody was hoping for. So I don't know whether that's still the case now, because I'm not in that sector anymore, but my guess would be it's still very similar sort of process going on. It's still a long way from actually replicating the being in the room together. Yeah, and I, you know, the techno-evangelists would say, oh, one day it will, but I'm not totally convinced about that. I wonder how much that has changed over the last year. I think I'll go back to Ben Anderson and ask him. In the meantime, here is Oliver Bates. So we'd find that people would turn like communal life off quite, you know, quite meticulously, I guess. But people didn't want to always do that because they wanted to... It's a navigation thing, right? Well, you, you're in a... I mean, the corridor was just straight, but it's like I can't see anything, so sometimes people would leave the lights But with students, they... No one, some people expressed kind of con, more con, conservational behavior, I guess. So, wanting to, wanting to, they knew that, that leaving the lights on was bad, so they would turn them off, you know. Did you get any fights in the halls of residence about the, the, the lights, Nazis turning all the lights off all the time? Um, <laughs> not, not really, but uh, there's things that I've read and people have spoken about, like uh, thermostat wars. Mm hmm. So if you share a space with, well, even at work, I get this. So I, w I don't want to be warm or I don't want to be cold, but the person sat next to the thermostat is is the opposite of the temperature. And once the opposite of the temperature, I want it. It's not even an energy thing. It's like that's like a personal comfort. Like a comfort almost comes into it as well. It's like I feel comfortable with these things on and these things around me, and that that kind of comes part of their everyday life. So I started asking you about the actual method. So you put sensors into a hall of residence? Yes. Every so socket or um, in a designated room um, or something? So we've, we did several studies. And the first one, we didn't have enough sensors. So it was kind of, it wasn't every socket. So with, where there was multi-way adapters, kind of, you know, where you could put four things in, we put it in the wall. So we, we didn't have, we could disaggregate disaggregate on a per like wall socket level there um, but that was better than the, so they had these uh, energy monitors and there was actually interesting there was an energy competition going on at the same time so people would see these numbers and they, they were like I, I don't know I don't, I don't. some flats didn't care other flats they would kind of be like they were actually in the competition but uh, sorry so we had yeah per socket energy monitors we were using light and motion so we couldn't get at the university infrastructure to kind of monitor the, the, how much energy, electricity that light was using. So we talked to um, working working out uh, when, when when there was light um, took into account the like, time of day and stuff. When you, when so it was light and it shouldn't have been the light yeah. was on. And we went in, we, we recorded like how many light bulbs there were. There's like four fluorescent lights in each of these like above. It's like like if all the lights were on in the room, it was like 300 watts or something, which is insane. Like in eight rooms in a whole, like if everybody had all the lights on, it's just like kilowatts. Um.
Oliver Bates has gone on to focus on social injustice, social equity issues in the gig economy. Someone else who we need to get back on the show. Let's go back to Wales, or maybe dolphins. Here is Jay Barlow. Um, one of the loudest things we could we could hear was the seismic surveys that were being being done off of the, the coast of the North Island. So I think it's just a matter of time before we, we have to worry about that. Do you think that'll avoid those areas? Um, the, the whales off Kaikoura are sperm whales, and their sound production is outside the range of the seismic survey noise. So they're producing sounds at uh, 4 to, to 20 kilohertz, and the seismic surveys are, are way down there at, at 20 to 50 hertz. So they're um, much, much lower and uh, far more, li- more likely to impact the baleen whales. So we've been talking a lot about the, the, the low-frequency baleen whales, and there's also high-frequency uh, used by s- the smaller whales, porpoises and the smaller whales. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you listen to those, those creatures? Same way? Or? Um, yeah, and just they're like uh, an entirely different challenge, but it's in the opposite direction. Blue whales make sounds that are so low that we can't hear them. Uh, the porpoises make sounds that are so high we can't hear them. Um, but there's very little else that makes sounds at those frequencies, and so the sounds are very unique. And so we can build um, a- acoustic listening equipment that detects those sounds. And one of the more interesting projects I've been involved with recently is the acoustic monitoring of the abundance of vaquita. Uh, vaquita is a little porpoise in the uh, Gulf of California and in- entirely in-, in Mexican waters. And uh, this this animal has been subject to a lot of bycatch in fisheries and we think the population is is declined to about 150 individuals now um, dangerously low much like your Maui's dolphin um, but um, the government of Mexico is making some strides in 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 uh, finding alternative gears that won't catch vaquita but they've also implemented an acoustic monitoring program where they put a bunch of acoustic uh, detectors um, that detect only porpoises in the water, and they there's a network of 64 of them within the Vaquita Refuge, and they record for three months all the Vaquita that come near them, and then you take the data back at the end of the field season, you analyze it for the next six months, and you can actually detect how many Vaquita were swam by each of the buoys. And if you do this for a long enough period of time, you'll be able to find out whether the population is continuing to decline or begins to show um, some signs that the, the conservation efforts are paying out, paying off. And do they have their own individual songs, voices again, or, or is it like the other whales that they just all sing the same kind of songs, make the same kind um, of noises? No, they don't have any recognizable differences between individuals. Um, they're, they're using sound differently than the whales, though, because they're using them for echolocation. So they're using a type of sonar, much like bats. And uh, they, they produce this, this very sharp, impulsive sound. It goes, ba- goes out and then bounces back off of fish and other things that they're interested in, um, comes back to them, and they, they hear those sounds. And they can tell from the time difference when they produce them, when they hear it, um, how far that object is from them. Let's hear from Dirk Soma and Dennis Chun from Kauai in Hawaii. The one that's going blown up? <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Well, we travel over the same hotspot, and if you notice, that the Hawaiian Islands are actually over 800 islands. Right. If you look at the Hawaiian chain, right. 
um, and they start way north. And you know, as the the plates have shifted and moved, that one plate is moving north over the same hot spot. Those islands have come up, though. So yeah. that's why you see that chain come through. And right now, Hawaii Island is the one that's on that hot spot right now, and it must be full. So the hot spot <laughs> decided. We got to get some heat out. We got to empty. <laughs> and it's very wet on the north and very dry on the south. Not necessarily. No. No. Um, it's it, every island has what we call a coal uh, outside of the island and a kona side of the island. So coal outside is is the windward side of the islands. Yeah. So the windward side, where most of the wind comes from, yeah. you know, is, is usually the wet side of the island, and the leeward side or the opposite side is usually drier. Yeah, just because the trades know, come in at that mm-hmm. right. With the rain, and by the time the wind comes, the other side is dry. Yeah. With surprisingly big mountains in the middle. Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the biggest the biggest mountains are on on Hawaii Island. Yeah. yeah. So it's about thirteen thousand feet above sea level. I don't know what it would be in kilometers, but um, that's pretty high. Yeah. Um, Kauai, I think Hawaii Ali Ali is about only about five thousand. But it's one of the wettest. But it's one of the wettest. Yeah. You do a search for opposites and you get a geography lesson on Hawaii. Let's try Kevin Haig. You're going to have businesses that are profit maximizers. What that then requires is a, a government that is uh, highly interventionist in ensuring the, that the, the, those environmental and social goals are met and are not compromised by that profit maximisation. Because what we have now is um, essentially unfettered profit maximisation. And what that means is if I'm a business, I'm, I'm setting out to maximise my profit. The way I do that is minimising my cost. And that means spending the least that I possibly can on labour and the least that I possibly can on raw materials and waste disposal. Okay, so profit maximization in an unregulated or largely unregulated setting leads to uh, environmental degradation um, and massive inequality and exploitation of working people. So, so people on the opposite side of the of your political spectrum would, um, or you know, different side would say, and the right wing always says that you know, red tape kills jobs. You know, that's that's their, their mantra. How how do you to respond to that? That argument, yeah, talking point. Well, I live in Greymouth, um, and from my kitchen window, I look out to the Paparoa Ranges where the Pike River Mine was, and I've led a series of attacks on the government. First of all, uh, that are based on the government of the 1990s, largely, and Bill Birch, Max Bradford, leading deregulation of the energy sector and of uh, the labour market, including occupational health and safety. Um, That led pretty directly, in my opinion, to the death of 29 uh, men in the Pike River Mine. So deregulation actually kills people. Um, And... uh, I, I draw parallels there between that deregulation and, and other disasters of deregulation that have af- affected and blighted the lives of many. 
So it's a pretty direct effect in, in the case of occupational health and safety. But uh, think about the deregulation of the financial sector that led to the the collapse of those of those finance companies uh, losing the the retirement savings of so many New Zealanders and others around the world deregulation of the building industry that that led to the the leaky homes disaster in in this country that that um, actually you know has has had an enormous impact on so many people's lives you know so deregulation has been the far greater disaster in my view. Here is Connor Boyle. Understandable. Um, one of my lecturers, who I, if I had gone into postgrad, um, I would have been. He would have been my supervisor. Um, the last time that I ran into him, um, I asked him how he's doing, and he said that he had just released a book, which the name of it escapes me right now. But it's a term used by pilots to describe the point at which you lose pressure in your cabin and the and, and, and the time between when you lose pressure in your cabin and the loss of the point of loss of consciousness, um, which is his sort of um, metaphor for the state that we're in right now. Um, and that we know that we've actually we've we've bypassed the, the point at which um, we've passed the point at which um, yeah we're likely to see major environmental uh, like ecosystem collapse um, and yet we haven't yet um, taken the, the sort of final breath as a species of, of the fullness of oxygen that the earth provides us for currently provides for, provides for us currently so how do I that doesn't, that doesn't sound I, very empowering for no, a 12 year old does it no but so I, I came up to this in, like in a really visceral sense um, also in conversations with, with, with friends and found myself berating people because they didn't understand the impending doom and I found how ineffective a, a process that is it's it doesn't really work um to tell people that we're all going to die that's not a, a very constructive approach but um and that's why i don't even talk about when i have a, an initial conversation with someone it isn't about the big picture the insurmountable odds it isn't about the global predicament of 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 humans on the this spaceship flying through the cosmos it's just about how are you and what's going on in your life and once we can once we can like and have some degree of understanding between each other and and what what is actually going on for someone and perhaps if needed to find some way of beginning to uplift that person then at some point we can have a conversation about the impending doom and how we participate in a in a more uh in a less doomy, gloomy future, but uh, until that, until people are ready to receive that conversation, there's there's no point in, in in beginning it. Otherwise, yeah, it has the opposite effect. It turns people away. I've I've lost friends from starting that conversation too early. People that I really valued having in my life, and now they're like, oh no, it's too intense. So learn, you've got to tone it down, and yeah, come back to the personal, come back to the intimate, to the spaces that are that are vulnerable. And when we can work in that space, then there's a chance of, of applying what we learn there to the exterior, to the big, to the grand, to the doom. So there's some kind of sweet spot, isn't there? That you've, you've said before that a sign on the door saying, you know, are you depressed, come in, isn't going to work. <laughs> Neither is a sign saying, you know, the world's on, going to hell on a handbasket, come in. <laughs> But neither is some kind of deluded. It's all just let's have a party. Yeah, yeah. And somehow you're 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 managing to find, I think, that way of engaging people. 
It amazes me every time we dig deep into the Sustainable Lens archive just how varied the conversations are that we've had over the time and how difficult it is to search for something that you had in mind just searching on a particular word or a phrase gets you quite a lot of different stuff that you hadn't intended. We certainly didn't get much of the social, political tension that fellow Kuti wrote about in Opposite People, but instead we got a whole lot of different tensions and a whole lot of different ways of seeing things and it could just be this is something that's opposite to uh, to that but all the same I think it's an interesting and worthwhile exploration in juxtaposing those different conversations and seeing the links uh, between those things so we're going out to fella Kuti's song Opposite People, uh, sung by or performed by Nguyen Afrobeat, the Chilean group, uh, featuring uh, fellow Cootie's son, Sian Xuan, uh, Cootie. Uh, but first, we have heard today from Indra Kularatni, Richard Jackson, Louis Chambers, Matt Lowry, James Irvin, uh, Philippa Brakes, Ben Anderson, Oliver Bates, Jay Barlow, Dirk Soma and Dennis Chun, Kevin Haig, and we finish there with Connor Boyle. You can hear the whole interview with each of those people on sustainablelens.org. We're brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We're here every week. We hope you enjoyed the show.
Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otagopolytechnic.ac.nz. A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.